Let's say it this way. Sinners cash in God's glory for the currency of idolatrous images. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Stephen Lawson tells a story about a diamond at a jewelry store. He says this, and I think we have a picture. He says, years ago when it was time for my wife and I to be engaged, I went to a jeweler in downtown Dallas. It wasn't long before the jeweler pulled out a diamond. And I remember the diamond looked okay to me. At the time, I was pleased with it, but it didn't wow me in any way. And then, he says, the jeweler did this. He pulled out a black velvet backdrop and slid it under this diamond. Wise man he was, as there must have been a hundred lights overhead. And when that black velvet backdrop was slid under the diamond, it was as if every light in that room was sucked through the diamond because of the black velvet backdrop. And that diamond now suddenly looks as if it were on fire. It looked as if it were alive and ready to leap off the counter. What made the difference? It was the black velvet backdrop that caused the diamond to glow so brilliantly. Now, uh, we continue our study of Romans chapter 1, and last week we saw the beginning of Paul's treatise on the gospel as he began with the good news of God's salvific work in declaring sinners Righteous, not by their works, but by faith in Christ alone. And in verse 17, Paul stated, as we looked last week, that in the gospel, God's righteousness is, there's a word there, it's revealed. It is disclosed, or more accurately, it is unveiled for us. The gospel is the good news of God. And yet what stands out to us right out of the gate, as we just read this text, is not good news. Right out of the gate, we actually have very bad news that this rightness with God can certainly not be transmitted from person to person like coronavirus just because you're in the same room and they coughed near you. You can't gain righteousness by being in the same room next to someone. You can't catch righteousness. It can't be achieved. It can't be earned. It can't be produced. 
It has to be gifted to you. It has to be imputed to you by God. So right out of the gate, this righteousness has been revealed. And today we're going to see something else revealed. What's revealed? Well, God's wrath. So if the gospel saves and we say, I'm saved, that's my identity, then what exactly are we saved from? And here's what Stephen Lawson in that little story goes on to say. He says, so it is with the black velvet backdrop of the wrath of God. When we take his love, when we take his foreknowledge and we set it on top of this black velvet backdrop, it causes the love of God to burst forth and to shine and for us to sing, as we just did, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Wretches deserve hell. Wretches deserve judgment. Wretches deserve what this black velvet backdrop would represent, and that's God's wrath. So what we're going to see for the next few weeks, today and next Sunday, is the blackness of sin as the backdrop to the righteousness of God. And let me just warn you, let me just give you a little uh, upfront prelude warning. This is going to feel a little bit like an unraveling or kind of like a maddening descent into an ever-deepening darkness of evil. So hang in there. Okay, this is your first Sunday uh, or next week or the first two weeks you've been here. Hang in there because this, this black velvet backdrop is only going to make the diamond of God's grace shine brighter. So as we begin Romans chapter 1, verse 18 this morning uh, through 25, and then we'll get to 26.32 next week, we're going to see the title of this sermon is The Rightness of God's Wrath. A lot of people say, it's not fair that God would judge me, that God would judge my lovely grandmother. Uh, the rightness, we're going to see the rightness of God's wrath today and that all men and women are without excuse. Why? Because God has revealed his attributes to all mankind in the general revelation of creation. So if you're taking note, we're going to see three aspects of this terrible backdrop this morning. And this will continue, like I said, next week. We're going to see, first of all, suppression. We're going to see the suppression of truth in verses 18 through 20. We're going to see substitution, substituting worship for worship in verses 21 through 23. And then we're going to see what happens when we do that. We're going to see subversion in verses 24 and 25. So with that as kind of our template, let's look at the first idea, suppression. Look with me again at verse 18. And I don't um, want you to skip over the first word. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Okay, I want you to make sure you know that this verse is linking to verse 17, which we often don't do. We often don't jump from 17 to 18. We break it down like we do week to week. So don't miss verse 17. Paul is saying here, listen, there's no other way to be saved other than by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. Why? Because you're under the wrath of God. You're unable to save yourself by going out and performing the works of the law or some other means of saving yourself. The gospel of God, the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, he says these are revealed. And what do we mean by the wrath of God? In verse 18, he says it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is the wrath of God? Well, in the modern church, we don't often speak of the wrath of God. We speak of the love of God. We don't sing certainly about the wrath of God. No, we change lyrics to make God sound a little more kind. And I was actually gonna list as many scripture references as I could about the wrath of God. Because I think sometimes as Christians, we're embarrassed, especially in, uh, when we try to speak to people in this generation about God's wrath. We feel maybe embarrassed where we have to kind of like 
go to bat for God. Let me, let me try to explain God's wrath away to you because it's kind of embarrassing. Um, and so when we look in Scripture, though, from both the Old Testament and the New, I was going to list all of the verses that I could think about, but I realized we'd be here for two hours at least. We'd, we'd be spending all morning together. But this, this idea of the, the wrath of God is not a concept that's like tucked away somewhere in the Bible, here or there, like those batteries in your junk drawer. You, you open the junk drawer and you're like, where are those batteries? Where's that nine volt? Because we have one remote that takes a nine volt because we bought our television in the 80s, right? So you're trying to find the one remote. Oh, there it is. It's almost like, well, I'm sure there's wrath somewhere in here. I, I'm sure of it. No, it's everywhere. Here's some just sample verses from almost every biblical genre. And here they are, Deuteronomy 9, 7. He says, remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Psalm 7, 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Nahum 1, 2 through 6 summarizes this idea that the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. Or there's Luke 12, 5. Wait, the New Testament talks about, I thought the old was wrath and the new was love. No. Luke 12, 5. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Or Ephesians 5, 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Or in Revelation 19, 15. He will, future tense, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What do we mean by the wrath of God? If the scriptures are replete with it, well, I think one of the best, most straightforward definitions comes from Andrew Murray. He says, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that, which is the contradiction of his holiness. Now, when we think about God's wrath, guys, we're not talking about human anger. When we talk about the wrath of God, we don't mean God loses his temper and becomes a rage monster and punches a hole in the drywall. We're not talking about that. God's wrath is not this malicious, vindictive, spiteful, like, I just want to get you back because you hurt me and I'm going to go extra on you, the way human anger and rage is. Uh, in fact, some of us are wondering, what is the opposite of God's wrath? Many people would say, well, the opposite of God's wrath is God's love. But I would say, on the contrary, the opposite of God's wrath is indifference. So just to put it this way, the opposite of God's wrath is not God's love, the opposite of God's wrath is neutrality. If someone were to harm my children and I just sat back and said, eh, who am I to interrupt? Who am I to judge? Who am I to step in and, and try to hope that this guy is going to receive some type of judgment? It's not my place. That's neutrality and that means I don't truly love. Mark Dever says, if God were not wrathful against sin, we would question whether he's personally good. What would it mean for him to say that he's committed to oppose evil if he refused to judge it? Even John Stott referred to God's wrath as his holy hostility to evil. And so when we look at this idea of the wrath of God, I want you to notice from the text kind of three aspects of this or three, three ideas about the wrath of God. Notice with me, first of all, that God's wrath is divine. It's divine. Notice that in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So this is divine wrath. What some may call earthly calamity God calls divine justice. When we look in Genesis 6 and we see a, a worldwide global flood or we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 or the plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus, we see this has been clearly directed from God himself. It wasn't just kind of accidental 
plagues or problems. See, nothing in God's determined decree against evil is accidental or just allowed as much as open theists try to make a silly case for that. No, his wrath is revealed from heaven and it is divine. But secondly, notice from the text that it is definitive. Notice that he says, Paul says, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, those two words are very different. So I'd like you to look at each of those two words when he says the unga- all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, one describes sin against God. So the first word ungodliness almost literally means godlessness. Whereas the second word unrighteousness speaks of sin against our fellow man. So when we look at the moral law of the Ten Commandments, we read the first four laws concerning our relationship with Yahweh and the other six in relationship with our fellow man. So God's wrath is universally definitive. Why? Because all have sinned. All have transgressed God's law by sinning against both God and man. And he'll get into that in chapter 2. So God's wrath is not merely directed towards a specific type of people, but universally against all wickedness. So no one is without excuse and no one can escape his terrible justice. So it's divine, it's definitive. Thirdly, God's wrath is deserved. As Paul goes on to prove, men have no excuse because God's attributes in creation have been clearly seen. Someone says, well, what about that one tribe in the middle of the South Pacific that has never heard the name of Jesus? Is that fair? Well, according to the scripture, it's deserved. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You can argue with the scriptures or you can listen to them. And here Paul says, God has shown all men uh, clearly uh, his invisible attributes. He says, namely, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived, not just in our generation, but ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. No one can stand before God and say, I had no idea. No, it's been clearly revealed. Psalm 19, one through four uh, beautifully says this, the heavens declare, in other words, they're speaking, they're pronouncing, they're proclaiming what? The glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, even to that unreached tribe that's never heard and their words to the ends of the world. Uh, We have essentially two ways that God has chosen to reveal himself. Uh, The first is called general revelation in a general sense. General revelation is God's witness of himself through creation to his creatures. General revelation through creation. Now, I just want to say this. General revelation is limited, very limited. And its ultimate end is to leave men without excuse for failing to recognize the nature of their creator. So it is limited because it doesn't show us how to be reconciled. It just shows us you're condemned because I've revealed myself enough to condemn. Uh, So we can't be saved just by general revelation. I see the sun, I see the moon, okay, I'm going to heaven. No, that just shows us there is definitely a creator and I am condemned. And that's where the second idea comes in. The second way that God and the true way God has revealed himself is what we call special revelation. So there's general in creation, but special, and that is where God has revealed himself to man through the word of God and the son of God. 
And the word of God, we learned the logos of God, that is the word made flesh, that is Jesus, is the word made flesh. And the Bible testifies of Jesus Christ, who is the express image of the invisible God. So Jesus and the scripture, you could say together, is God's special revelation. And listen, church, all truth is given by revelation. So men and women are without excuse. Because what can be made known about God has been made plain to them. And this has happened ever since the the very creation, the very beginning. God's existence has been clearly seen through the general revelation of creation. And therefore, God's wrath is deserved. It's definitive. It's divine. We don't need to be embarrassed about it. Uh, We need to um, communicate it. Sinclair Ferguson says, God's holy wrath is poured out on what he hates because it damages and destroys what he loves. There's not an opposite here between the wrath of God and the love of God. No, this is consistent. God is loving because he's wrathful, and he's wrathful because he's loving. We need not be ashamed of this. We actually should have boldness to declare the God's wrath. We need to lean into it. And by the way, this is not just God's wrath in a vacuum. This is God's wrath, notice he says, against men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? He says they suppress the truth. Would you guys please underline that word suppress? Suppress. Now notice he didn't say because they reject the truth, they ignore the truth, they dismiss the truth, they avoid the truth. No, they suppress it. I want you to picture in your mind's eye holding down something that's not supposed to be held down. You're unable to hold it down and it just wants to rise back up. And no matter what you do to push it down, the more force you push it down, the more force it wants to rise up. You know what came to my mind this week? What came to my mind is when I was five years old in the pool with an overinflated beach ball. And I wanted to push that thing down. I wanted to hold it down under the water. And you were with me, right? Well, not literally, but you were five years old at one time. And you guys remember trying to hold the beach ball. What happened? As you wrapped your arms around it and tried to hold it down, what happened? You and I all know that you've, the thing rolled you over, right? It flipped you over and it kind of bounced back out. You and I all experienced the scientific idea of buoyant force. The more you push something down, the more that submerged beach ball goes under the water, the more force pushes it back up. It's not natural. It's not easy to do that. That is an apt picture of what men and women are doing when they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. It's not easy. It's not natural. And it leads to some other things. Not only to those things, but it leads to experiencing the wrath of God. But notice what happens when you do that. Notice what happens next, substitution. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, all scholars, commentators that I've read, this is not speaking about the Jews. This is not speaking about Christians who go astray. This is speaking about the world, unbelievers, the Gentiles. He's pointing out that they knew God, and yet they didn't give God honor, they didn't give God thanks. And even though they had a recognition and an awareness that God existed, they did not do those two things. They first did not honor, you could say, the godness of God. They failed to recognize his godhood, if you would. And so they diminished his goodness, they diminished his sovereignty, they diminished his holiness, they diminished his immutability. And what happens if you begin to suppress God's truth, you don't honor him as truly God, so what you do is you dress him in human attributes or reduce him to the level of man. So that's the first thing they do. They don't honor him as truly being God. But secondly, 
It says they failed to revere him with grateful hearts. So they, they don't give thanks to him. Now, when we first take our initial deep breath of atmospheric air into our baby lungs, that very first breath, remember it? Probably not. We as humans, in that first breath, the first breath that you had, you took a deep breath as you came out of your mother's womb and you just expressed worship and thankfulness to God for giving you air in your lungs, right? That's what you did. No, it's not. The first response that we had as we came out of our mother's womb was ingratitude. We began to cry. We began to uh, just demand, right? And, and so the unbeliever fails even years later, decades later, even a lifetime later, fails to wake up and thank God for the things that he's blessed us with, like a balanced orbit around our sun. We just go one or two degrees off further from the sun, and we're in a Siberian winter. You know how that is. Uh, or a few degrees a little bit closer, and we need SPF 10,000. And we can be thankful that we're not a little bit closer to the sun because those people in Texas, especially this week, have experienced that a little bit. Uh, and if we move away from the sun, you can't sustain life. So we fail every day to thank God. We fail to thank the sustainer and the keeper of the nucleus within every atom and every cell and all the visible matter in the known universe. We don't get up and just thank you, God. And so for that reason, the supposed wisdom of the reprobate becomes foolishness. We reduce God. We, we don't honor him as God. We stop giving gratitude towards God. And what happens is our thinking now becomes futile. We go from where we could be elevated in wisdom and, and truth, and now we're living out a lie. And this lie, as we're seeing in our culture today, is just endless. It's, just, it's a continual down, downward trend. Notice what Doug Wilson says. He says, the sin starts with rebellion and ingratitude. That's the first step. God takes our head in both his hands and points it toward the greatness of his glory. And we refuse to look at it because to do so would obligate us. We take the greatness of his glory and we thrust it away from us, holding it under, suppressing our knowledge of it. So Paul says they claim, they have a claim. Oh, I'm wise. I don't know. I'm, I'm a wise person. I have intellect. And yet, Paul says in this substitution, they take the creator and they exchange him for creation. So true worship is now counterfeited with idolatry. So I like to say it this way. Sinners cash in God's glory for the currency of idolatrous images. Let me say that again. We as sinners cash in the glory of God for the currency of idolatrous images. And notice that Paul says these images, these images actually resemble a few things. Notice that he says, uh, in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So mortal man could be a reference to the ancient Greek statues that they had all over every city that you would walk by and, and be in awe of. Maybe that's a reference to that. Birds could be a reference and animals could be a reference to the Egyptian gods, Horus and Ra and Anubis. And then creeping things could be a reference to these ancient serpent cults. And that's possible. But I believe it's also a throwback to the initial day of creation. Look on the screen at Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, let them have dominion over 
Look how similar this is. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see, on day six, God creates man in his own image and then he sets man up to have dominion over all of creation. You could say God's the owner and man is the manager. I'm not even going to go there with a womanger. Okay, he's the manager, all right? God has put man as the manager over, the steward over, the dominion of creation. So notice what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, this is like an undoing of creation. This is a reversal. So in the wisdom of God in creation, God makes man as the pinnacle over all creation, in creation. Man, though, above creation is created in the imago Dei, the image of God. And then he's placed over the fish and the birds and the animals and even the insects that God has created. And so the foolishness of man is to take something not made in the image of God, some created lesser thing, and instead of ruling over those things the way that God intended and designed, instead man in his folly bows down in worship and allows the image of the created thing to rule over him. You see, what we see here is the unraveling, the undoing of God's created order. Have you ever kind of looked around the world and said, something's amiss, something's wrong here? And that's what Paul's describing. See, we have suppressed the truth and now we've substituted the truth. But see, the substitute is an awful stand-in. This would be a bad time to ask, has anyone had a substitute teacher in middle school? Because it's a little offensive because I actually was a substitute <laughs> and that's a little unfair and that offends me. Uh, but, but we look at this and we realize these created things are an awful substitute. I don't know if you've seen that show on Netflix. I don't recommend it, but it's called Nailed It. And the idea is, you give people who are not good bakers a chance to make a super complicated cake that's supposed to look like a princess, but they don't know how to bake, and so they make their attempt at a princess. I think we have a picture of it. Their, their best shot, <laughs> nailed it. I nailed it. You see, that is a great picture of what we do with something beautiful God's given us, and in our futile thinking, our foolish hearts are darkened, and we exchange God's glory for an idol. Now, We'll take that down. Notice what, you're going to have nightmares. <laughs> Notice what Psalm 135 says. The, see, the scriptures are synonymous with this. This is all around the scripture. Psalm 135 says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. These idols have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, they can't see. They have ears, they can't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And then here's, here's where the mic drops. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see, ultimately, this third step happens. We become deaf and dumb like the things we worship, which are lesser than us. Instead of worshiping the true God, we worship a fallen creation. And so notice what happens next. This third step is what's very scary, and that's when God says, okay, I'm going to give you over and allow this subversion to happen. Notice verses 24 and 25. It's very sad. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So notice that God gave them up or God gave them over. Okay, First of all, in an indirect way, God gives someone up or over to the impurity simply by withdrawing his hand of protection and restraint. So that's one indirect way. A debased mind 
has suppressed God's truth and exchanged God's truth, and now they face the consequences of a life of depravity. So the safety that the law of God provides someone, sexually, for example, is now removed like the brakes in a car and and the life of an unbeliever careens wildly around the shoulders of the freeway. So in an indirect way, he just removes his restraint. But in a more direct way, when we say God gives people over or up to impurity, it means finding the logical conclusion of suppressing and and substituting the truth. And that is subversion. And that's where this final step of dishonoring the image of God and man himself, we begin to allow that to take root and take shape. Here's a very unpopular statement in gender and sexuality. When we go this far, we say at this point now, I'm going to dishonor the image of God in my own personhood, in the person that I am. John MacArthur says, sin degrades man. It debases the image of God in which he's made, and it strips him of dignity. It strips him of peace of mind, and it strips him of a clear conscience. Sin destroys personal relationships, marriages, families, cities, and nations. It also destroys churches. Thomas Watson said, sin puts gravel in our bread and wormwood in our cup. Now, thankfully in his grace, even though God gives people over to their impurity, that's not an eternal abandonment. Thank God. See, as long as men are alive, there's an opportunity for Christ to save. And God's patience towards sinners still leaves room and time for repentance. And his grace is seen so bright and clear like a diamond in front of the blackness of our depravity. And all of this is God's wrath. So it's not just... Uh, judgment against sin. All of this is God's wrath. So the suppression, the substituting, the subverting of God's truth is itself revealed uh, against ungodliness and unrighteousness. So as C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, the mercy of God is when we say, let thy will be done. Whereas the wrath of God is when God says, no, no, let thy will be done. We get what we wanted, which is what we never wanted. Now, just for a moment, note the contrast. I thought this was really fascinating. Note the contrast between this chapter, Romans chapter 1, and Romans chapter 12. Uh, At the end of Romans 11, Paul begins to give God glory for his unsearchable ways, his sovereignty, his mercy, and salvation. And it seems like a big contrast compared to how he describes the false worship here. It's almost as if Paul, listen to this, like Paul is saying, this is what you become if you worship idols. But... This is what you become if you worship God. So look on the screen with me at Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, not the wrath of God, the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, Chris, leave that up for a minute. We just talked about the wrath of God. Here's the mercy of God. We talked about a refusal to honor God. Here's reasonable humility in honoring God. We talked about dishonoring of the body. Here's offering of the body as a living sacrifice. Chapter 1 speaks of foolish, idolatrous worship. This is reasonable, intelligent worship. There is, of course, the reprobate mind. Here's the renewed mind. We see a rejection of the righteousness of God. And here we see an approval of the will of God. You see, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, substitute the truth, and as we'll unpack next week a lot more deeply, 
who subvert the truth and unrighteousness. And so, again, as we leave here with kind of a, kind of a heavy note, uh, we realize that there is uh, a God to be worshipped. He is true. He's revealed himself uh, in the personal work of Christ. Now, for our purposes today, uh, before we wrap up, I'd like us to apply this passage in how we present the gospel, how we share the, our faith, how we preach the gospel to unbelievers, okay? So remember, Paul just explained the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And right out of the gate, uh, we learn how dark uh, the condition of the world is. So we today, 2,000 years later, are still preaching good news in the context of bad news. So here's three things for us to walk away with today. Number one, when you preach the gospel, don't minimize or apologize for the rightness of God's wrath. Too many times I fear when we share the gospel with people, we're only sharing the love of God and not the law of God. So the the wrath of God is not something we need to be ashamed or embarrassed of. It's right and it's just. And in light of lawless treason against his law, widespread sensual debauchery, lewdness, sexual immorality, child molestation, the murder and oppression of the innocent, rampant deception and corruption, political oppression, genocide, the evil imaginations in the human heart, in light of the fallen condition of mankind, if God were to do nothing, that would be shameful. I like what Stephen T. Davis says. He says, our only hope as human beings is the wrath of God because it shows us that right and wrong are objectively real. They're to be discovered, not created. And the wrath of God teaches us the moral significance of our deeds and shows us how life is to be lived. You see, the wrath of God fully doesn't make sense until you see the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. And so if we didn't have sin, we wouldn't really understand the depth of mercy at the cross. So don't be ashamed. Don't be apologizing for the wrath of God. Number two, as we preach the gospel, number two, don't seek to prove what God already knows. And that is that God exists. This point really kind of hit me this week. Remember I said earlier, uh, it's not that men don't know the truth. They do. But they're holding it like a beach ball under the pool. And they're trying their best to hold it down. Uh, So real quick, Doug Wilson says this. I love this. He says, when you're in discussions with the office atheist or the radical secularist in your family at the Christmas reunion, don't undertake to prove what everyone there knows already. Don't accept their invitation to prove to you that the beach ball exists. See, we get caught up in that. Well, let me prove to you the beach ball. They know the beach ball exists. They're holding it down. So we need not get into this argument. We need to not seek to prove what everyone already knows. God does exist, but they're suppressing that truth. Number three, when we preach the gospel, don't forget with tears that man is sinful and God alone is upright. You see, uh, sin will take a variety of forms as we'll see next week. And sometimes Christians will put one sin category as like more sinful than another. But the reality is all have sinned. Men and women are without excuse. And part of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness is man's prideful audacity to exchange not only God's uh, glory for idolatry, not only creator for creation, but also to swap attributes. So man has the bravado to believe now God is sinful and I am upright. How could a loving God allow the Holocaust to happen? Like God is sinful, and man is upright. 
Well, well, Grandma wasn't a bad person. She didn't deserve God's wrath. God was wrong, and see, we equate sin to God, rightness to man. We've, we've swapped attributes. And just as a faithful doctor would not let you walk in with your WebMD printout, you walk in like, hey, I went on WebMD, I know what I got. And you begin to read it out, and he's, <laughs> if he's a faithful doctor, he's not going to let you self-diagnose. He's going to be faithful and responsible to make sure you have a true diagnosis. And John Stott says on this, our Christian duty is rather through prayer and teaching to bring people to accept the true diagnosis of their condition in the sight of God, which is sinner in need of salvific grace. In light of the wrath of God, I don't want to keep us in suspense until chapter three. We won't be there till April. (laughs) The darkness of your sin, the darkness of my sin is that black velvet backdrop. And it isn't what we want to focus our attention on or leave today with. It's what helps focus our eyes on what's beautiful. No one's selling the black backdrop at the diamond store. That only shows the beauty of the diamond. And so may we focus on what is beautiful, the mercy and the grace of God in Christ. This morning, sinner, in light of your sinfulness, will you embrace the undeserved mercy of Christ? May us, may we, may our hearts as his children be lifted up this morning as we sing this great truth we're about to sing, that in Christ alone, my hope is found. That on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin that we've ever done on him was laid. And here in the death of Christ, we can live our Christian lives with great joy and peace and power. Amen? Let's stand together. We're gonna sing this. Father, thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your wrath. We know it is deserved. We know it is definitive. We know it is divine. Lord, we don't shrink back from it and recoil from it. We know that Jesus went in our place and bore that awful wrath that we deserved. And so, Lord, we thank you that you didn't hold back the wrath that that we deserved. You didn't hold it back from your son. You poured it out completely. And Jesus took our place faithfully. And we thank you, Lord, that now, risen again, conquering sin and death, Lord, we, risen with Christ, have our sins forgiven. We have hope in a future. And we can stand before this holy, holy, holy God uh, without the fear that would always accompany sinners standing before a holy God. We thank you that now the curtain has been torn in two and there's been a way that's been made because of the finished work of Christ. Thank you for the righteousness of God that's been revealed even as the wrath of God is revealed. We worship and thank you today that in Christ alone our hope is found. And it's in his name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.